Hi, I'm Andrew, and welcome to the Review of Two Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Maria Balaya. Is that right? Have I got that right? Right. I had several practices at that, but I'm still not confident. I don't think if I said it again, I think I'd just do it differently. But um, anyway, um, we're here today um, to discuss your, your paper. So can you give us the title of your paper you're here to discuss? Do you right. remember it? The last one, I don't, didn't remember the title of his own paper. So. <laughs> right. So the Optimal Climate Policy in 3D, Mitigation, Carbon Removal, and Solar Geoengineering. Okay. And um, do you want to tell us about your um, research group? Um, so I think you're at Harvard, aren't you? You're in the Keith group. Yeah, so, well, I'm an environmental economist, and when I was working on this paper, I was doing postdoc at Harvard on the Keith group. Uh, I'm now moved to DC and in transition. Um, so you want to back up? Say again? Moved where? To DC, Washington, DC. Okay, and, and what, what institution do you work at there? Well, I'm in transition, so I'm not anywhere. I'm still affiliated with Harvard Environmental Economics Program and Forum for Climate Engineering. Okay, um, but you're not you're not working in the field. Are you working in the field at the moment, or? I do, but in both, basically. Okay, fine. Right. So, um, do you want to give us a, a, a quick summary of your paper um, uh, for people who are, you know, uh, who haven't bothered reading it, including me? So, just bring us the basics. Right. Well, first of all, I think should mention that it's an integrated assessment study. So it's a modeling. And uh, we looked at, um, as the title suggests, on mitigation, carbon removal, and solar geo on the interaction over time or um, their strategic role in the optimal policy. So we introduced um, solar geo. Um, it has done before. I mean, people have introduced Sologio before into integrated assessments, but uh, what we've done different is we disentangle sort of the efficacy and the um, direct impacts of Sologio. And um, it sort of drives a more, we believe it drives a more constructive way of talking about uh, the Sologio. So what um, you're doing is basically the kind of nap, the equivalent of a napkin diagram with that John Shepard came up with or always associated right. with all those years ago. I think there's a bit of right. confusion so, about who actually came up with that idea. But you're, right. you're basically saying, well, look, we can do three things about climate change. We can either produce less carbon emissions, we can remove carbon emissions from the atmosphere, um, or we can use solar geoengineering. And exactly. there's a trade-off between those methods. And, and your paper, exactly. as I understand it, is to try and find the optimal balance. Yeah, but the, first of all, so the napkin diagram was not ex ante for us, right? So, it was in fact the outcome of the model results. When we have mitigation, we add Sologio as an option, we add CDR, and uh, the napkin diagram came up as um, an outcome. Yeah, so you're, you're deriving the, the napkin diagram from first right. principles, right? So, right. so when, when John, it was just a sketch, and there was no quantitative model behind it, but oh. it's been pretty you know, successful in terms of a concept. A lot of people have based, um, you know, I've, I, I think I've cited it in probably Two or three papers at least and probably more um so um it's, it's been pretty influential concept so you've derived the napkin diagram from first principles yes. that's a sort of basic for that's us what to start with uh, but then also having the model in hand what we could have done is basically what we've done is to um do sensitivity and look how do they interact um, with each other 
what if you remove one instrument, what would happen um, in optimal manner, of course, when we okay. mind the global welfare, you know, um, so that um, something to aspire to as opposed to prescriptive. Okay, so you've, you, it, the kind of short summary of what you found, your napkin diagram, does it actually look like the napkin diagram that John Shepard came up with or, it or does. does it look very different? So we do not have adaptation, but no, it is the same. I mean, okay. Um, now we also found, for example, that solar, so the role of CDR is to drive the solar geo, sort of phase out solar geo. Um, it's more, in their case, they just had three of them at the same time, but we could play with having only mitigation CDR versus adding solar geo. What does it do um, for the climate policy cost to, um, so we have a bit more information to that. Um, but yes, um, the diagram itself is preserved. Okay. so. Let, let me just explain back what I think you've explained to me there. So what you're saying is that um, SRM gives you rapid temporary relief and buys time for you to scale up carbon dioxide removal. Is that the case? Yes. So, um, well, we always, so we start in parallel with mitigation and solar geo. And then um, okay. we, we also do CDR though. I mean, as we do now at the very low level. But CDR, CDR takes time to scale up, right? Exactly. There's no CDR at the moment to exactly. any climatically significant extent. So, you know, as soon as it gets too hot, you can't rely on CDR to sort the problem out because you've got to, you know, you've got to build an entire industry to do it, right? Exactly. So both mitigation and CDR are expensive. And so having solar G, of course, we do, all, we do both. So two things, reduce damages in the short term, but also because we displace some of that mitigation to save in policy costs. Okay, I mean, that's really interesting. So the, I think, you know, a lot of people are gonna pick up on this and, and, and David has, has made this point in public. And in fact, he's probably the only person who's ever done this um, to my knowledge. And I've heard an awful lot of people speak on um, solar geoengineering. And I think almost to a man, everybody else has said, um, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't use SRM to uh, reduce mitigation whereas Dave has been quite explicit in in the past as far as I recall and said you know it, it makes sense for us to reduce to some extent the level of mitigation that we do um, when we do solar radiation management because there's a trade-off in in, in in policy terms it's not that we don't need to mitigate but you know if, if anything that we can do to reduce uh, the, the, the damages from climate change means that we'll make a slightly different set of trade-offs that might mean for example investing um, money in, in other things that we might like to do, like, for example, species preservation or road safety or whatever other public spending priorities there might be. But also, um, we'd be in a situation where um, uh, we would have um, the opportunity to um, uh, to set a spending profile and, a, and an intervention profile that, that, that gives us the same climate outcomes without the early costly mitigation. Is that the well? You know, is that also, what you found? Frankly, what I would tell you that uh, yes. So the model tells you that yes, there is a less mitigation, optimal, less optimal mitigation when you add solar geo in the short term. Uh, and sort of so, just to give you an idea of the model itself, to um, the dice model that we base upon, uh, famous integrated model, um, uh, the cost, the abatement cost decline over time because of technological developments. So one of the incentives to have the solar yeah solar gets cheaper over time exactly. and therefore so it doesn't cost much to mitigate exactly. in the future but it might be quite you, expensive to mitigate today right 
you don't stop completely, but you delay just to take advantage of the delay um, of uh, declining costs. But I would say, I mean, to be fair, when I say um, Sology or sort of delays mitigation, we are talking about delays optimal mitigation. In fact, if we do lack at um, current, What's the distinction there? Current I mean, you're mitigation, if, if you would look or think about it as a current mitigation level, you still need to increase the level of control with stronger policies required. It's yeah, just, look, I mean, I don't think like we are we're arguing. Yeah, it's no, not I, like I get it. I understand. Look, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. think anyone's saying, okay, well, we don't need to mitigate. I mean, certainly David's yeah. not said that, and he's been pretty clear on his views. Well, um, not, he's not, very pro mitigation. But, I'm talking about the direction but, of the move, because we always talk about the displacement um, as if we are at the optimal point already, but we are not there, and we are not. No, we're, no, no. I get it. We're nowhere near that, but but that's not the question. I mean, I you know, I, I don't want to kind of straw man you by saying that you're pro uh, proposing no mitigation at all. But what I'm saying is that David's David's stance, to my mind, has always been pretty clear that he thinks that there is some degree of trade-off, and what your paper has done here is to provide some kind of quantification for that and obviously anything based on dice is going to be pretty simplistic it's not the most sophisticated model right um so um but it but it gives us an interesting insight into you know how we might make these policy trade-offs now in your um uh in the abstract of your paper you said that this isn't moral hazard and i'm trying to understand why it's not moral hazard and if it's not moral hazard then what is because it sounds very like moral hazard to me um well moral ha it's a displacement of emissions but moral it's not moral hazard because you're not um so what you're doing is you're maximizing welfare and in well, fact I appreciate that. Idea, you you push welfare even further well so yeah look i get it i get it i understand and, but but that isn't a novel argument to say that we're maximizing welfare because I mean, the, the welfare maximization argument is the, the foundation of moral hazard from the start. And, 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 and the idea of welfare maximization being, you know, a comprehensive solution um, to an economic problem is, is, um, uh, is an incomplete solution anyway, because welfare maximization doesn't necessarily take into account other crucial factors such as, um, you know, the ecosystem stability because it's concentrated on human welfare driven by say GDP or whatever metric you might use in your model, but also you're in a situation where you're not necessarily fully pricing in risk. And I think most people would agree that a, a climate of say one degree centigrade with mitigation yeah. getting you to one degree is substantially safer um, than one where you have um, a, a substantial amount of, um, uh, of solar radiation management getting you to one degree. Um, you might have the same welfare, but you certainly don't have the same risk profile because if anything yeah, goes wrong with the solar radiation management, you then have a massive termination shock. Right? I don't think so here you talk, I mean, I don't think that's the model where you would actually talk about moral hazard in the first place. I don't think it's appropriate framework for that discussion. Well, my, my, um, it's not my framework. I mean, loads of other well, I know, I know. framed it around moral hazard. I mean, it's, it's a central issue. I mean, what yeah. you're basically saying here is that, you know, you, you see a role for the reduction of mitigation, relatively speaking, um, compared to some uh, alternative future history. Um, and, and you're replacing that to an extent um, with, with solar geoengineering. I mean, that to me and seems to be, you know, certainly by the conventional description of moral hazard. And I, my own work on it suggests that moral hazard is actually two things. So you've got moral hazard, which is 
recklessness and moral hazard, which is malfeasance, and they're fundamentally different. But, but just taking this, this sort of conventional, undifferentiated um, interpretation of moral hazard, what you're describing there seems to be absolutely bang on what moral hazard is. Um, you know, you're delaying mitigation, even in part, to um, to do solid geoengineering. That doesn't make it. It doesn't make All it right. bad. All it right. doesn't make it a bad thing. I'm, you know, it might be very sensible. I, you know, that's why we've got you on to, you know, shout at you and tell you your paper's rubbish um, because it, you, your ideas might be very sensible, right? Um, and, and that's what we're here to test. Um, but what I'm saying is that to say that it's not moral hazard, I mean, that seems to me to be absolutely, you know, bang on straight down the line, moral hazard, exactly what people are bothered about. So help me understand why that's not moral hazard. Is it just because you don't, is it because you're claiming that it's not, you know, you're not completely avoiding mitigation? You're still saying that we need mitigation. We just need slightly less of it. Well, is, that, is that why you think that it's yeah, not? Yeah, but also, the, yeah, I think it's more of a term moral hazard as well, because you say that you're taking more risk, but in fact, you're just using another instrument to reduce the risk. And I think the term itself is not very appropriate. Um, I would say, yes, there's a displacement of mitigation, but no, I don't think that's the same as to say that moral hazard is okay, Well, I mean, you know, if the term's not appropriate, I mean, you put it in the yeah. abstract, so I assume <laughs> that you've got some views as to whether it's appropriate or not, and you, sure. it's appropriate enough for you to have used in your paper. But I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I don't purport to be an expert in moral hazard as, as it's conventionally described because I don't I don't use that terminology. But I think to say that this isn't moral hazard, bearing in mind my understanding of the term moral hazard as it's conventionally applied and, you know, with caveats as to the flaws in that. But, you know, that does seem to be absolutely textbook moral hazard because you're proposing at least a partial reduction in mitigation um, in order to you know, to, to, to do some, or, or solid geoengineering permits a reduction in mitigation. Um, uh, and, and that would appear to be a moral hazard position in that you're, you're, you're allowing the continuation of something which is a, uh, still a harmful activity. You've still got issues of ocean acidification. You've still got in, in issues of intergenerational justice because you're handing down risk and costs to future generations through the, um, uh, through through the obligation to do future CDR and to uh, and also to um, uh, the, the, the to continue SRM and and to bear the risks of those activities because they're not zero risk activities certainly SRM isn't right um, so you know the, these things are um, you know there is a moral impact to doing that we you know we have to make a moral decision as to whether to to to, to do things in the in the way you're describing so. We, we, you know, I don't, I don't want to labour on that point. I think you know many people would disagree with your interpretation of, of whether that's moral hazard or not. But right. you know, I, I take I take your view on it, and I, I understand what you're saying that it's not you're not advocating a complete cessation of mitigation, and therefore you don't regard it as moral hazard, which is you know your your view, and you're entitled to it, and that's fair enough. Um, can I talk to you about the quantification of this? Because you've obviously got um, uh, you've obviously got an idea in mind as to you know exactly how much. Um, you are um, uh, avoiding mitigation. So the, let's say, for example, we take an arbitrary future point, 2100, okay? So if we've got a business as usual, whatever baseline you took, I mean, we might take RCP 8.5, which is a very high um, emission scenario used 
often to kind of test models because it gives you a nice big signal, but you might have used a different emission scenario. Um, and then you'll have a proportion of that addressed through mitigation, a proportion of that addressed through um, uh, cell radiation management, a portion of it addressed through CDR. So crudely speaking, you might say it's a third, a third, a third, um, and that gets us to where we need to be in 2100. But what, what are the real numbers? Because I just made those up to illustrate the point. Uh, well, so we have conservative approach to parametrizing solar geo here, so the efficiency, efficacy. Um, and for the 2100, it's actually large. Um, solar so when you say conservative approach to parametrizing solar geoengineering, I, I think from what I understand of what David's done in the past, that he has um, taken, uh, that, that you've assumed that, uh, an, uh, a U-shaped cost-benefit function. So that as, as the amount of solar geoengineering done rises, the damages associated with solar geoengineering rise non-linearly so that the model just doesn't solve an infinite amount of solar geoengineering. That's what we are doing here now. So, um, as I said, we have two um, two pathways, the way solar geo enters the model. Like classical, I mean, of course, the initially the classical approach was to have this quadratic function that adds to the damage costs and you have um, sort of both uncompensated damages and um, plus costs, plus all solar geo comes with all the side effects in one function and they rise quadratically with the level of solar geo. Now what we, but what we do here in the paper um, is different, right? So we have two separate parameterizations. Uh, one, solar geo enters in radiative forcing equation. So it creates this negative radiative forcing that um, counteracts greenhouse gas forcing and it reduces the damages um, imperfectly. So this is the efficacy part that depicts um, the imperfection of compensation for greenhouse gas driven climate region. Okay, so you're climate assuming that the removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or mitigation gives you 100% damages reduction. So if you move, remove a ton of CO2, your model regards that ton of CO2 has been completely gone from the damages function. Whereas with SRM, you're assuming that there's some residual damages remaining. Is that right? Or? No. So the damage function, I mean, it's a dice. So we didn't change that. In fact, um, so in DICE, you have this, um, like emissions that are a result of economic development. Uh, they enter the carbon cycle and there is a three reservoir model. Um, so they enter atmosphere, but then there's a diffusion process, the mixing up going on within the three layers. Now, and then the atmospheric carbon concentration enters the temperature equation, which is also um, temperature model, it's a climate, like simple climate model for two layers, upper ocean and the atmosphere and the lower ocean. So there's mixing up there too. And now in classical dice, of course, the dam damages are driven by the temperature. Okay, so what's different or new about what you've done here? Well, so um, we looked at um, how the introducing solar geo would reduce um, damages. So it's more instant in a way when you remove, so when you remove CO2 from the atmosphere, for example, it would go through the whole uh, process of, um, you know, equilibration, inertia. inertia. So yeah. it takes time, while when we introduce solar geo, it's 
immediate change in the reinforcing, which pretty much immediately alters uh, the damages. And uh, okay. again, so the, so kind of like the, the roughly equivalent to the difference between having a cup of coffee and smoking a crack pipe, right? You just instantly high off a crack pipe, whereas a cup of coffee takes quite a while to kick in. Your SRM is just a faster function, right? Well, you can think of coffee and tea. So coffee is a fast, uh, a relatively fast um, coffee intake while tea kicks in very slowly and at a lower level. Okay. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that tea is absorbed more slowly than coffee, but I'll take your word for it. I get the point. <laughs> Um, uh, I think I'll think I'll stick to my crack pipe if that's all right. Um, so, um, so the, the SRM, the SRM basically works faster. That's what you're saying. You're in the model; it gives you a, a, a quicker way of because uh, it's not you're not waiting for the mixing function and everything like that, right? That so, um, time at the same time, just to say that to be more detailed, um, yes, it is fast, but it's imperfect. So you can't just um, avoid. But why? I mean, why is SRM? But why is SRM faster? I mean, at the end of the day, it works by the same mechanism, right? You're, you're well, it goes through radiative forcing. You immediately go through radiative forcing. You don't have to go through the whole climate system inertia. And so... When well, hang on. It, the carbon dioxide also affects radiative forcing instantly. I mean, there's a temperature lag for carbon dioxide in that you raise the temperature and, it, you know, you've got a thermal inertia in the surface but ocean. All right, but, but why, would, why would it be faster with solid radiation management then? Than with with carbon dioxide removal i mean i don't i don't get the physics behind that why i don't well i don't think i'm the right person to tell you the physics okay. part of it of course but uh we'll have to drag on one of your co-authors so it's um uh juan moreno cruz and uh, david keith that you wrote this paper with wasn't it correct okay um so um right so you're you're but the what, what are the key conclusions you come to? So it, the, the model spits out quite a bit of solar geoengineering. I don't think you actually, sorry, you didn't answer my previous question about the, the amount um, that was involved. So what, um, what in, in terms of the, the actual amount of uh, uh, intervention from each of these forms, what, what, what proportions was it in? Was it roughly a third, a third, a third, or was it something different from that? It is changing over time, and that's the interesting part. So you start um, for the conservative, for example, you would start with large amount of solar gear. By large, I mean about two or three watt per meter squared. Yeah, um, but let's talk about in proportional terms. So um, if I have well, kind of a hundred a hundred units of climate change, then you know what what proportional um, intervention am I making for my solar geoengineering? In your in your model well, are you getting for the 2100 uh for the 2100 yeah. for example the contribution would be you reduce uh, the radiative forcing reintroduction from eight to six let's say to three um we'll zero from six to let's say three so solidity is a larger part so more than 50 percent so more than okay. So basically, your model—I mean—that's a hugely significant result. Like if that if that turns into policy, as it, you know, I don't know whether it will or it won't. But right, but but, right. but let's be clear, it might do. Okay. So the your 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 paper. I mean, I know that a model result isn't a proposal, but let's crudely call it a proposal because I can't be bothered going through all the um, the gymnastics of referring to what it actually is. But your proposal then um, is to just. To, by 2100, you'd be using solid geoengineering to do with more than 
fifty percent of the climate damages. I mean, that's 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 a vast amount of solar geoengineering. Uh, what I think many people would think that would be required, right? Radiative forcing terms. Now um, there are many. So that's the. It just shows but, but, you. Okay, but let, let, let me unpack that. Hold on, because yeah. like. Okay, can I? Compared to a baseline, compared to a baseline situation, right? I mean, if you're dealing with half of your climate change impacts through um, uh, through solar geoengineering versus mitigation, I mean that implies a, a relatively low level of mitigation for the um, uh, for, for for the time. You know, that you, that, that's a lot of that's a lot of continued pollution that you're envisaging, right? All right. So first of all when um i say yes that there is a in the near term especially just because the soldier have this power of reducing emissions or reducing damage immediately yes it are, it is larger in terms of radiative forcing than is mitigation of cdr of course um, but at the same time realizing that um, i mean it depends what your goal is right i'm talking about the optimal policy where the temperature reduced to 1.5 degrees so yeah. we also actually looked at the policy where you um, want to reduce the temperature to two degrees or below two degrees. Well, you basically want to cap it at two. And, and um, so if you look, um, there's, um, you want to limit temperature to two degrees using this three instruments or, but you also do not, you want to limit solar geo level, let's say, you don't look at the optimal level, at the cost-benefit optimal level, but there, I mean, there are other factors that might limit the amount you would want to deploy, right? Um, the political. Yeah, I mean, like the climate. There may be limits in the climate system to how much. Exactly, and I think it's more realistic way of thinking about it, not necessarily the cost-benefit um, or suggestion, but more precautionary principle where we're not sure yeah. about the large amount of solar geosis we go with the small ones, and so. Um, looking at that, um, when we slowly, so we have that figure to slowly increase the solar geodynamics, you will see that cumulative mitigation in CDR would decrease and the cost, the policy cost would decline tremendously as you increase the level of solar geo. But even for the one word per meter squared, um, you would get about 40% of reduction in a total sort of policy portfolio cost. So I'm talking okay, yeah, look, I mean, solar geoengineering is as you what you're basically saying is that your model returns what people have often used to describe SRM colloquially as being fast, cheap and imperfect. Right. And what you're saying is that uh, for a model which is trying to prioritize economic growth and minimize spending and solve the problem from an economic point of view, you're getting a very high level of solar geoengineering. And this, frankly, cuts the <laughs> to the heart of the uh, objections by some of the deep green hard left where you know i, I mean I, I they're not on the show to defend their views but let me just paraphrase them as i understand them what they basically say as i understand it is that the, the very existence of solar geoengineering as a technology the study of solar geoengineering as a discipline um creates a situation where um people are gearing up um, you know, economically, psychologically, technologically, for a much lower level uh, of sociological and technological transformation. You know, so the, the pressure to kind of cut consumption amongst the, the wealthy, to um, uh, trade off between um, 
uh, you know, economic growth and, and mitigation, you know, all of these difficult trade-offs and, you know, even perhaps even in, in, in terms of limiting population growth, you know, all, all of these controversial, difficult, challenging policy decisions are all um, kind of swept away by the seeming economic ease and convenience of solid geoengineering. And through that, we are, you know, taking a great um, moral risk with the future of the planet. We're, 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 we're trading ourselves into a position where we have um, uh, very significant um, geophysical risks, um, intergenerational justice issues. Uh, and, and for a long time, the solid geoengineering community has said, well, you know, no, that's not really true. We all want mitigation reduction to happen. And you very explicitly said in your start of your paper, the abstract, that this isn't moral hazard. But, you know, as I said earlier in the show, I think many, many people would disagree with that. And I think, you know, from what you've described, from my understanding of the the term moral hazard is, as it's conventionally applied, and I don't agree with that nomenclature. This certainly is moral hazard, and, and you've quantified, you know, I think the novelty in your paper is, is perhaps different to the novelty that you perhaps perceive in the paper. The true novelty is that you've shown quantitatively just how dangerous this idea is. Yes, so definitely quantitative is uh, the strength of the paper, just because we have the model and exercise and it, it allows us to go further in that. Um, but, but I mean, could I just address, ask you to address the key point? I mean, it isn't isn't the you know the output of the paper a quantification of the danger of the idea of solar geoengineering? Well, it's not a behavioral economics paper. It doesn't show you that. I mean, it shows you the available technology the optimal use for the technology, I don't... Yeah, but the optimal use, but the optimal use by your definition, I mean, whether you call that behavioral economics or not, you're, what you're showing is that the, the model solves for a very substantial um, amount of solo geoengineering uh, and, uh, and, and therefore um, creates an, an acceptance or even encourages uh, a relatively lightweight um, mitigation. I mean, if your mitigation is below 50%, there's a CDR component in there as well. And so, you know, the, I don't know where the mitigation comes out at, but there can't be a lot left because you've got less than 50% to play with. So, I mean, you're looking at a really pretty gargantuan reduction in the, in the level of, uh, of mitigation from well, current levels. You look at the level of mitigation, but what I look at is uh, the fact that when uh, in the regional dice model that does not have solar geo, the damage costs are tremendous and the temperature rises above three degrees and that's the optimal. Okay. But and I mean, people criticise dice quite heavily for I being yeah, I don't think geophysically, geophysically unrealistic. So, I mean, I don't I, think... I don't believe really it's fair to talk about stronger mitigation without um, thinking what is behind that. So stronger mitigation means someone would not get an access to electricity over time. Um, well, not necessarily. I mean, it, 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 I think the problem with, with, with that kind of framing to say, oh, you know, well, well we can't have mitigation because poor people um, uh, won't get electricity. I mean, that, that isn't necessarily the trade-off. I mean, uh, the, the trade-off is perhaps more likely that rich people don't get to go to Disneyland twice in a year. They only get to go there once. I mean, that, that's in the more practical not terms. Necessarily. Well, that's how you look at it. Um, but uh, a lot of climate change damages and in, increase in emissions come from the south and um, as they develop further. So I think it's developing countries and- Well, ne nevertheless, the, 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 you know, on a per capita basis, the, you know, the, the emissions are disproportionately driven by uh, 
of very affluent high emitters. And if you look at it from a welfare point of view, the increase in utility, the kind of human happiness benefit from consumption, um, you know, considering that one person can, doesn't have the capacity to be more happy than another person, people who are affluent just spend more of the planet's resources getting less and less return. Uh, you know, so this comes down to a central justice argument. I was sounding like an absolute commie on this route, on this show. Uh, it's quite remarkable. I mean, I, I, I think this is the most left wing I've ever been about, well, anything really, certainly on review too, anyway. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of shocked in a way about the, the, you know, not only the results that have come out from this model, which, you know, are quite uh, startling in many ways, but also, um, uh, you know, by the, by the, by, you know, the defense of the model that you're the, your results which you're putting forward which i you know I, I wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily call them blase but i think that that that, that, that they perhaps lean towards um that uh in in that you you're not in, you're not immediately referencing the limitations it's it's it, it's been down to me to point out these issues mm -hmm. of generational justice and geophysical risks um associated um in the paper as opposed to you you know you raising them spontaneously so i mean it, it, i do find it concerning paper in many ways um not necessarily i'm not saying it's badly executed but i think that the, the contextualization of it within the societal um, well i think dimension. i was pretty clear that i'm talking about the benevolent um decision maker and i think i wouldn't do are you i mean I, I, I get that i get that you're trying to frame it in that way but there's a paper which doesn't consider the intergenerational risks of termination shock you know, well, is that is that can that be a fully informed benevolent dictator? Is that just a benevolent dictator is, you know, ignoring most of the important or many of the important issues? So you would say that um, your reading of it would be that termination shock is a real problem for. Well, what I'm saying is that ter termination shock is a non-zero problem, and to have an economic model which solves um uh a, a, an sro injection level for uh, if it's if it's based on gdp maximization as opposed to um utility maximization which is the different so, shock is a choice and this model has a rational decision maker and it's difficult to imagine a situation when the rational decision maker would allow for the termination shock to happen and in fact well, in the real world um termination shock is a very questionable realistically well, I think, well, hold on, let, let, let's just challenge that. I mean, a, a rational, the problem is that rational decision makers aren't always in charge, are they? Because we have leaders like, you know, Donald Trump, who doesn't always behave rationally. Um, and, you know, I, I understand that people like Andy Parker have done some interesting work on termination shock, and I broadly agree with his conclusions that it's perhaps an overblown risk. But what I'm saying is that from a, a, at least a theoretical perspective, a world with one degree of warming um, but an excessive amount of solar geoengineering is a vastly more dangerous world objectively than one with just much lower carbon dioxide emissions, you know, considering the same economic situation. Now, you might say, for example, well, you know, mitigation would create so much poverty that the world would be would have geo geopolitical instability anyway. And, you know, all these poor people who've been forced to mitigate might then invade rich countries and try and take some of their economic resources. I, you know, I understand that there are effects like that but without looking at those kind of second order effects which you know aren't readily ignorable but let's just set them aside for a moment um you know a, a world in which cons consumption is broadly unfettered or largely unfettered um and um you know the termination shock risks are embedded in the system is an inherently more dangerous world and what, what i'm saying is that 
the, 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 the benefits to people, the utility benefits, the, the, the happiness created by that you know, second trip to Disney World um, is, is perhaps not worth the risk of termination shock. And the model that you're describing is one in which mitigation, I'm not saying it, it barely happens, but there's an awful lot less of it than there might be. And that to me, you know, even as probably the most gung-ho advocate of geoengineering I know, okay, I literally know nobody else in the field who is more gung-ho than I am, that to me is terrifying. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, I think um, we've, you've uh, unusually for our reviewer two victims, you've explained that you've got a hard stop. Um, so, uh, and we also had some technical cock-ups at the beginning. So we didn't get the chance to um, uh, get into this paper quite at the beginning of the, the time allotted. Um, so we've only got a few minutes to wrap up. Um, what are you, uh, is there, firstly, are there any other aspects to what you've done in this paper that you, you, you haven't had the chance to go through that you'd like to, to explore on the show? Is there anything that you, you think we need to go through? Well, I would direct attention, to, well, direct readers or listeners to just basically- We always call them readers. Yeah, I think it's the habit <laughs> of writing academic papers. I, 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 um, I, I call them readers all the time by mistake. Um, I'm glad that I'm not the only person that does this. Yes, um, we have wonderful pictures, uh, figures uh, to supplement the text, and I think it's helpful to look at the numbers. Um, for example, uh, one of the figures is about the delaying policy, the costs associated with delaying Sologio versus delaying CDR. Um, but yeah, I think um, we covered some of it, uh, some of the important aspects of the paper. Uh, it definitely okay. tells you what, did, what didn't we cover what do we miss what's important that we miss no i think we did yeah well <laughs> okay so um what what are your further plans to work in this field i mean you you say that you're between institutions so i'm unclear as to whether you're continuing your work or what uh, have you got plans to work again with these co-authors and again on this topic? Or I still not? do, yes. Yeah. So I'm interested in international aspects of the Solagio, so international agreements. That's one yeah. of the current projects that I work on now. Um, and definitely, no, Solagio... Are you following uh, various COP nonsense that I'm trying to ignore, or are you uh, ignoring it too? Say again? Are you, are you following the various COP um, stories, or are you conference of the parties in Glasgow this week, or are you... I'm, I'm trying to avoid it. Juan oh. I, 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 has said that he thinks it's uh, basically a big fat nothing, which I'm broadly in agreement with, but I'm just wondering whether you're paying much attention to COP as it's sort of well, barely I'm, in your field. I will definitely pay attention to that, yes. Okay, all right. Well, that's, uh, I'm glad somebody is because I can't be bothered. Um, so, um, uh, uh, but have you got any further um, ambitions to sort of extend this particular strand of work or? similar work with the co-authors that you work with or is, is this a sort of single standalone project that's done and dusted now where where are we at with this well i think it's a good standalone paper i don't think um i would try to play with it even further yeah some of the papers just you don't need to put them into an extended series of work you just do them and they're done you've made your point so this is one that i think i've heard david talk about for quite some years now um, the idea of, do, of, of doing this model. I think he might, did he, has he done another one with DICE or is this the only one he's done with DICE? Well, we have another one um, that is talking about the value of information based on the study, but it's um, 
not so much. I mean, it's just using this model because I think the parameterization we developed is um, applicable to many models. And so that piece of work, this piece of modeling can be used further. And I think we will be using it in this way. Okay, well, um, I'm be interested to hear more on this. And, uh, you know, hopefully I think that this, this should be a controversial paper and I hope it gets more attention, not because I necessarily agree with it um, uh, or, or, or even think the methodology is uh, particularly, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think there are methodological concerns with it because I think that the, the, uh, the degree, the a real world decision making process based around the concepts in this paper, in my view, would include a lot more conceptualization of the risks than you've described. Now, that's not to say that your analysis doesn't have value, but it's um, incomplete, I think. Um, and, you know, that the, the somewhat scary conclusions are, um, you know, a, a real, uh, uh, really quite terrifying. And I think the degree to which it might embolden people who view uh, a lower mitigation world um, it, it, it's pretty concerning. So I'm actually well, going to wear my, wave my red flag. I'm terrified about other studies that tell you um, what is the, if let's say there's no sology and there's limitation in CDR, do you, does it not terrify you when you see the amount of damage costs and the amount of temperature we are looking at? No, I, I absolutely agree <laughs> with you. And I think that, that, that I fully agree with you that solid geoengineering is much better than uncontrolled climate damage, um, which is why I, I describe myself as being you know, a very strong advocate of geoengineering, relatively speaking, you know, compared to other people who, who work in the field. But what I find terrifying here is that, you know, to me, I, I see uh, a, a lot of potential for very swift mitigation um, because of the falling price of, um, uh, of solar um, and wind. And if you look, for example, at Britain, um, you know, we're only at 2021 now, and Britain is somewhere around 50% um, mitigated in terms of its electricity consumption because we've moved to renewables and, and you know, with some nuclear in there as well. Now, uh, that's very, we're very early in the century, and I don't think it's likely that Britain will stop anywhere close to where it is. And I don't think it's likely that other countries won't follow suit. And I think that the idea that we won't be doing, you know, more than 50% mitigation by 2100 is a bit odd. Now, the idea that, you know, people might look at papers like this and it might embolden them to say, well, you know, scientists say we can just do 50% through solid geoengineering. So let's go dig up a bunch of coal and burn it. And you know, people like Australians might be quite happy about that. So- Well, um, I read paper until the end. Um, pardon? I hope the re if the readers would read the paper until the end, including the conclusions and the precautionary notes that are there. Yeah, look, I don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, <laughs> I'm not trying to paint you guys as, as, as naysayers for mitigation. What I'm saying is that such a large proportion of SRM in your climate solution runs the risk of emboldening those who would prefer not to mitigate and, um, and who view the uh, issues around SRM about you know the, the risks and the intergenerational stability issues 
um, it, it, it runs the risk of, of, of minimizing those. So, well, with respect to your hard stop, I think I'm going to draw this to a conclusion. It's been a, a fascinating discussion. Um, I'm going to um, uh, reject your paper, of course, for the reasons that we've discussed. Um, but I'd certainly like to hear more about this, and particularly perhaps somebody um, you know researching and, 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 and building in some of the discussions um, that you started with this paper uh, into uh, later and, and, and perhaps more sophisticated the work that draws in some of the issues that we haven't um, fully explored in this paper, because I think that they are um, you know, really very important to, to bring to the fore in the debate. Um, and I hope that we can find a way to do that. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, and I look forward to um, seeing more work from you in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew.